to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, there are some Bibles in the back of the information table, or you can look on the screen to my right. Matthew chapter 2, we've said that we are hoping and praying this little Christmas series would, in particular, strengthen our faith, strengthen our faith in, in Christ this Christmas. And so let's ask God that he would use his word by his spirit to that end. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we do. We ask you that you would fill us. You command us to be continually filled with the Spirit. And we pray this would be a filling moment in which we experience your power and the gift of illumination as you open the eyes of our hearts. You help us understand and apply what we read here in this familiar but profound scene. Help us to that end, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. 2017 marked, if I'm, not, if I'm correct, the 60th anniversary of a revolution. 60 years ago, we entered the space age when the Soviet Union launched the first artificial satellite, Sputnik. It looked, I'm told, like two large salad bowls put together. But as one historian comments, quote, no event since Pearl Harbor set off such repercussions in public life. Well, I don't know if you realize this, I'm not sure if you're catching this, but, but what we celebrate at Christmas has set off massive reproductions, uh, repercussions rather, wrong word. <laughs> that was a mistake. Massive repercussions. I'm here for your entertainment. Massive repercussions in public life. In fact, friends, what we celebrate holds out wonderful repercussions, life-transforming repercussions for you and me right now. Repercussions that could transform your afternoon. Repercussions that could affect how you go to work tomorrow. Repercussions that could change how you spend your time or how you spend your money or just why you live your life. Repercussions even for where you find your greatest joy and satisfaction. So what I want to do with you would be to cover the story, tell the story, and then draw a few lessons from which we can see those repercussions. So that's the outline. Story, and then a few lessons in which I hope we experience those repercussions by the power of the Holy Spirit. So first, here's the story. Let's survey the story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, Traditional Christmas scenes have this taking place with these wise men around the manger with the shepherds and the farm animals. But did you notice no manger here? Did you see it? I didn't see it. <laughs> In fact, this scene may have occurred up to 
two years after Jesus' birth. And typically we hear that there were how many of these wise men? We three kings of Orient are, right? Bearing gifts, we traverse afar. There may have been three. There are three gifts. There may have been three, but we don't know. It could have been ten. And some say, it's not all that likely they were actual kings. They may have been. Matthew just uses the term magi, probably meaning people who specialize in dreams and astrological phenomena. This much we can say for certain. They came from somewhere in the east, probably a very long ways, and they are looking for a king. Maybe, maybe because in the book of Numbers, chapter 24, a guy named Balaam prophesied something. Quote, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a kingly scepter, shall rise out of Israel. It's possible they had some familiarity with some of those passages. We don't, we don't know. They see some kind of star, and they conclude a king has been born, the king of the Jews. That's their question. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So Matthew wants us to see the identity of this child. He's a king. He's the king. He's the king of the Jews. The title he will have above his head as he's crucified at the end of this gospel. But the one currently calling himself king is not especially excited about this development. Verse 3, when Herod the king, notice the contrast, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. And they told him, quote, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so, so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For, notice, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So here we are introduced to King Herod, or Herod the Great, famous for his building projects and famous for his paranoia. He was so paranoid and so cruel, he killed his favorite wife, had more than one, and at least two of his sons in his paranoia. It seems that's why the city of Jerusalem itself is troubled in verse 3, worried about what the cruel, paranoid Herod is going to do with his information from those wise men. You see, Herod was appointed to this office. He's not Jewish. He was not Jewish. He was appointed to this office by the Romans, and he plans to keep his office. Thank you very much. So one born king of the Jews is a threat, and he's going to eliminate that threat. So he assembles the religious leaders and scholars and asks them, you know, I was wondering in one of my pious moments, I was wondering where might the Messiah be born? Just want to have a theological discussion. And they tell him in verse 5, Bethlehem. For so it's written by the prophet Micah. And then we read in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, 
privately, a little private conversation, and ascertain from them what time, what time the star had appeared. How long ago did this happen, guys? And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, because that I too may come and worship him, trying to be on his best behavior. When you find the child, let me know. You know I am eager to join you in worship of this child. He's actually eager to kill him, as we'll see next week. But God, friends, God is not hindered by the evil intentions of this paranoid man. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold... The star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So supernaturally, God now guides these magi from where they were in Jerusalem to the place where Jesus himself is staying. Their response is joy on top of joy on top of joy. It's just superlative joy, joy, and more joy. They're quite happy. They're doing the, you know, the ancient Near East touchdown dance or something. Look, guys, it's a star again. I can't believe it. And in the, the, uh, the pinnacle of the story, verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. It may be that they've traveled 2,000 miles from Babylon. We don't know. Hundreds and hundreds of miles through the desert. And they saw the child with Mary's mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him, the child, gold, gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. I would like to know what Mary is thinking here. The angel Gabriel had shown up and told her she'd be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. She knows the child is miraculously conceived. She remembers the shepherds at his birth gathering around in the delivery room, saying an angel had summoned them. But now these guys who have traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles show up unannounced, bringing, I imagine, the most expensive gifts she's seen in her whole life. They're on their knees before her toddler. Faces beaming with joy. Hardly able to contain themselves. That's a wish I could have been there kind of moment. To see that. At some point, I wonder how long as well. I wonder if they stay for weeks, months. I don't know. I don't know. How long are you guys staying for? Thanks for the gifts. We're planning on being here. Finally, they decide to go home. Make the long journey home. And Matthew gives us the conclusion of the matter. God's intervention once again. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream. Not to return to Herod. 
they departed to their own country by another way. God warns them, don't go back to Herod. He's not planning on worshiping the child. That's the story. That's the story, and the identity of this child is a king, the king, the king of the Jews. What does it mean for you and me? What, what lessons should we draw and what repercussions should we experience? Well, let me draw three lessons. Three, I think, points we should glean about this king in particular. First, first we should recognize the king, this king, is the very center of God's purposes. This king is, to be sure, the center of God's purposes. I say that because the main actor here, the main actor is not the Magi, it's not Herod, it's God himself. God, God superly, supernaturally leads the Magi, doesn't he? The star which they followed Jerusalem, the star leading them to Bethlehem. It seems perhaps somehow identifying the place where Jesus was in Bethlehem. God leading the Magi, God protecting the child, this king, God warning the Magi, don't go back to Herod, he's got bad things on his mind. God leading the Magi, God protecting the child, and most of all, God here fulfilling his purposes as revealed in his word. I mentioned Numbers 24 earlier, Balaam's Balaam's prophecy. Certainly you could see here Micah chapter 5 being fulfilled, referenced by the religious leaders, where Micah, Micah looks into the future and sees a ruler who will shepherd God's flock and bring peace to the land. And the key, they're asking, where? Where? It says Bethlehem. Micah prophesied Bethlehem, the city where King David was born and raised. King David, to whom God made a promise. A covenant saying, David, from you, I'm going to bring someone, a king, to rule before me forever. He's going to be born in that little town. Even the words in verse 6 tacked on to the end of the Micah quotation, you will shepherd my people Israel. That's from 2 Samuel chapter 5. Words from God spoken to David, just to make sure we're catching the David connection. And then scholars see the ultimate fulfillment of at least two other passages. Let me just read these to you. You might want to jot these down and read them later. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May... All kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. It's a great description of what we're seeing here. All nations serve him. Or Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. Listen to this. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Realize, at the time when this is happening in Matthew chapter 2, God had been, as it were, silent for about 400 years. God had not spoken through his prophets to his people since around 400 BC. It's a lot of silence, isn't it? What would you be thinking? What would you conclude from all that silence? I, uh, I read a book a while back entitled Into Thin Air. 
You read that into thin air. It's, it's a compelling book. It's about a very deadly climbing season on Mount Everest. It tells the poignant and sad story of Rob Hall, a climbing guide from New Zealand who died on Mount Everest that year. He was trying to help a client, got pinned down by a massive blizzard on Mount Everest. You can imagine what that's like. He realizes things are looking they're looking very grim for him. He radios others down lower on the mountain. He asks to be patched through by satellite phone to his wife in New Zealand, pregnant with their first child. They have a conversation via satellite phone. He's reassuring her. And then the phone goes silent. Silence. What do you conclude from that? It's over. That's how God's people may have been thinking for 400 years. And now he's here. Now, all these promises that have been like in this pressure cooker, the, the instapot of God's promises have been cooking and pressurizing. And now he's here. These wise men have come wondering, where is he? We've come to worship him. Look, maybe you feel right now like God is just silent in your life. And you're wondering, where, where is he in this situation? Where is he in this suffering? Where is he, is he in this trial? Where is he in the nations? Christmas is a wonderful, wonderful reminder. Strengthening our faith that God is at work, friends. God is at work at all times, accomplishing his purposes, especially his purposes that center around his son. Our God is like a great conductor of a massive orchestra. And we are all in the orchestra playing our instrument, playing our little instrument, along with everyone else in the world playing their instrument, each, it would seem, playing their own part. But the conductor is there, piecing it all together, keeping it all on the score before him, this massive, great sheet of music that's leading him and guiding him, centering his purposes all on his son. But what do those purposes look like? Well, secondly, we see here, secondly, that this king, this king is the savior of all peoples, plural intended. This king is the savior, the rescuer of all peoples. We saw this alluded to in, in chapter one, in the genealogy of Jesus, where he's called the son of Abraham, referencing the promise that through Abraham would be a blessing for the nations. And now we see Jesus as that blessing very early on in his life, don't we? Men from the east, maybe Babylon, we don't know. Somewhere from the east, they've got some acquaintance with the Jewish scriptures. They're anticipating this one, born king of the Jews, and they follow. This star, hundreds and hundreds of miles, probably maybe a couple thousand miles. Who knows? Hoping, longing to encounter this child. Now contrast their behavior with that of Herod and the religious leaders. A very intentional contrast that the Holy Spirit sets up here. Herod responds with violent opposition, especially as we'll see next week. The religious leaders respond just as poorly, but with apathetic 
unbelief. Where is the Messiah to be born, they are asked. Oh, we can answer that academically. (laughs) Academically speaking, of course, hypothetically speaking, he'd be born in Bethlehem. But don't ask us to travel the six miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem just to see if he's really there. Kind of like, I don't know if you saw this on CNN recently, an article in which a cab driver in Washington, D.C. picked up a few passengers. Passengers realize the cab driver is a big, big football fan. And so they ask him, who is the best quarterback ever to play in the NFL? The guy is a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, but he says, Denver Broncos legendary quarterback John Elway best quarterback ever. The lady recording the video asks him then, would you recognize John Elway if you saw him? He says, of course. Of course I would. She says, turn around. (laughs) He turns around and to his astonishment, he immediately recognizes, that's John Elway sitting in my cab. Is his great response. He goes, oh, come on, man. Are you serious? Come on, man. You, You would hope the religious leaders would respond like that. Just turn around. And see if you don't recognize him. He's six miles from you. Instead, it's the Gentiles. These spiritually dirty, ostracized Gentiles who recognize him. Christians have traditionally called this event the Epiphany. The Epiphany. The Gentiles have an Epiphany. They recognize Who Jesus really is, fulfilling Psalm 72, fulfilling Isaiah 60, as the nations bow before God's king. So these magi, well, they're certainly a picture of faith from all peoples, but I think even more so they're a picture of God's grace toward all peoples. I think it was D.A. Carson who commented, it is interesting how the Old Testament forbids astrology, right? Any kind of discerning of things happening from the stars. Are you a Virgo or whatever? The Old Testament forbids that. And these guys are some kind of ancient astrologer. We don't know what kind. And Matthew doesn't condemn that, doesn't condone that. He just shows God meeting them right where they are. And using what they understood to lead them with this star to this child The king, that's grace, is it not? And the repercussions of this grace are immense. It means no one is excluded from the salvation this king brings. Whether whether your race, your culture, your background, your season of life, if you surrender to this king and trust in his saving work, you are included in his kingdom. You see, of course, the child grew up. Don't leave him in the manger. He lived a perfect life, perfectly righteous, only been done one time. Then gave his perfect life for our imperfect lives. He died for our sins, for all who will believe. So his Perfection could be given for our imperfection. His perfect righteousness covering our unrighteousness. That's his grace. He holds out. 
So that if you come, if you have come, if you have come to this king, you get to say right now, it's all of grace. I've experienced the repercussions of God's grace. My Christian life is grace from beginning to end, just unmerited, ill-deserved favor. You get to say at Christmas, I know him not because I am morally superior to anyone. You get to say at Christmas, I, I know him not because I'm smarter and figured it out and decided really wisely. All that may be <laughs> factoring in, but the reason you know him is because God extended his grace to you. He held out a blood-bought summons and you experienced grace. And so now you get to say with the Apostle Paul, what do I have that I have not received? I would have been ostracized from God. I was alienated from God. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. And now I know the saving grace. And if you've yet to come to this king believing, God is holding out to you, friend, the same grace. These, these magi are a wonderful picture of the invitations open to everyone. It's open to you. You turn from going your own way and you, as it were, surrender to this king and you trust in his life, death, and resurrection to take away your sins and bring you to God. But... But God is not just saving by this king. He is also saving for this king. Let me say that again, because I, I think this might be the unique contribution of this passage. God is not just saving by this king. He's doing that, of course. He's also saving for this king. You see, thirdly, we should glean here, thirdly, that this king is deserving of all worship. He is deserving of all worship. In other words, we want Christmas to strengthen our faith in Christ, but to what end? What is the end of our faith? The purpose, the God-intended result, if you will, of, of our faith. I think we see that here pictured as well, don't we? In verse 10, the Magi rejoice exceedingly with great joy, joy on top of joy on top of joy. Just notice, because of the star that's leading them over to Bethlehem, imagine that joy when they see the child face to face, for in verse 11, they drop to their knees. And verse 11 says, they, they worship him, they gladly offer up all they have, these very expensive gifts, not because it's their duty. They didn't say, oh, gee, I don't want to part with that gold, but I've been saving that, I don't know. The frankincense is my favorite smell. No, it's like, oh, I can't believe it, take it all. Now, their worship here in verse 11 is probably the paying of homage to a dignitary they highly esteem. That the word translated worship 
covers that potential range of meaning. This idea of they, they come and they just pay joyful, costly, enthusiastic homage to this dignitary they highly, highly esteem. That's probably what is in their minds. I'm no mind reader, but that's probably what's in their mind. But, but certainly, friends, Matthew has more than that in mind for us. He's just told us in chapter 1 that this is Emmanuel. Like we sang, God with us. He's just so told us he has been conceived miraculously by the power of the Holy Spirit to be, Spirit, to be the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, the Magi, the Magi worshipped better than they knew. And we know so much more than they did. But sometimes that's part of the problem, isn't it? If you're like me, I find my heart gets cauterized by these truths that are so familiar. I get cauterized by familiarity, especially at Christmas. We know the story. It's so cute when the kids sing it. It loses its impact. But listen, God, God wants to awaken in us fresh faith that produces joy that produces satisfaction and, and delight and glad-hearted worship in this king. The, the repercussions could be thought of like a Copernican revolution in your soul, even this morning. Copernicus, one of those guys who had the radical idea that the sun is the center of our solar system, not the earth. So it was a radical reorienting of what is central Right? A paradigm shift for what really holds everything in place. And friends, Christmas holds that out to you and me once again. A Copernican revolution in the soul. Where it's not me at the center. We're reminded and helped to see it's him. It's him. It's him. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the comedian Brian Regan. How many are familiar with Brian Regan? Pretty, pretty many. You've probably seen... If you haven't, I think this is worth going out to, to find on YouTube. The skit where Brian Regan talks about the me monster. The me monster. The me monster appears at, say, a party of some kind. And the person speaking is talking only about themselves. It's a very humorous thing where he talks about, don't ever in such a situation ever talk about having only two wisdom teeth removed. If you bring up a story of only two wisdom teeth being removed, the people with four wisdom teeth having been removed will jump in and cut you off. That's nothing. You won't get a chance to finish your story. They'll say, I have four wisdom teeth removed. They're all impacted. And you, just, you have the floor, me monster. <laughs> it's a very funny thing where he talks about, I want to be the guy, one of the guys who has walked on the moon. Because you silence the me monsters with that. Four wisdom teeth? I walked on the moon. But isn't that an insightful picture of our hearts? Of Tab's heart? We are addicted to ourselves, left to ourselves. We are, by nature, me monsters. 
I think it's insightful as well how the novelist Walter Percy, he says how whenever we have a picture, a photograph, that we know that we're in somewhere, we always look first to find ourselves. Abigail, my daughter, emailed to me a couple days ago pictures of our time at Thanksgiving. Whole family dressed up, looking good, hadn't seen them yet. Email comes, Thanksgiving pictures, opening up, what do I do? Looking for myself. How's Tab looking? Oh, looking pretty good. Look, there he is. Oh, there he is again. Look at that handsome guy right there as well. It's the me monster. And you laugh because you can relate. It's the me monster when our lens for everything is, how does this impact me, my life? And are you inconveniencing me? It's the me monster when we say, how does this affect me and me alone? And what are you asking of me? Do you realize what you're asking of me? And I trust you realize you could be critiquing me right now. Moi! It's my preference. It's my convenience. It's my reputation. Always at the center of the solar system. Me, me, me. And Christmas comes along and says, no, it's him. It's him. It's him. Don't, don't we need... Something, someone with a greater gravitational pull to come alongside and keep pushing us out from the center and reminding us that it's him. Christmas supplies that. Christmas says the king has come to create worshipers from all peoples of the earth. As commentator Grant Osborne puts it, he says, quote, these exalted personages, these magi, They represent the rest of the world. They represent the rest of the world come to bow at the feet of the infant Jesus. That's well said. That's what you're seeing. I think it's a little picture of Philippians chapter 2. One day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think it's a wonderful picture of Revelation chapter 7. A great, vast multitude from every tribe, language, people, nation, worshiping the Lamb who's on the throne. This, friends, is what we're seeing. Are you experiencing right now the repercussions of this that Christmas brings? It transforms the the why of your life. It reminds you of your aim, your purpose, and your goal. It's not for me, me, me. It's him. It's him every day. It's him. His praise out of my joy. His glory out of my delight and satisfaction. It reorients what you get up for and do tomorrow morning when you go to work. Your vocation, whether it's in the home, outside the home, as a student, as Colossians 3 says, you are serving the Lord Christ. And listen, that's written to slaves who didn't get a whole lot of chance to decide what they wanted to do with their career. You are serving the Lord Christ in your vocation. It's vertical. It's him. Christmas reorients how we relate to our spouse. And our children, or our parents, or our friends, it's no longer just me, me, me. Christmas comes and frees us to say no. Whether you eat, or drink, or whatever you do, it's all to the glory of God. Christmas enables us to say with these magi, 
this king, he's the object of worship because my heart is filled with exceedingly great joy. And that's just been my prayer for myself this week. I want, I want a little more of their heart. A little less of me. A little more of rejoicing with exceeding joy in Him. You want to join me in that prayer? That's why we gather right here on Sunday. I hope you see that. I, ho- I hope you're not here this morning just saying, that's my duty. Checking off the box. Checking off the box. I hope, I hope you're coming saying, either God, give me more joy, or God, I can't wait to sing to you out of this joy. But both are expressions of worship. God, I'm lacking the joy. Would you help me? I need you, Holy Spirit. Or I just can't wait to sing to you because I'm so filled with joy. I hope you come, friend, like these magi. Let me sum this up. God is saving. God is saving by this king. Worshippers from all peoples for this king. For him. Your salvation has that end. To be a worshipper. God is saving by this king. Worshippers from all peoples for this king. So let's conclude by asking, how are you going to respond to this? This passage is a fascinating contrast of responses. You have the violent opposition of Herod. You have the apathetic unbelief of the religious leaders. And then you have these, who knows what they really knew, magi, who found the child. And they can't contain themselves. Which friend, which, which friend will your response be at this king. Let's, let's ask God to meet us. That you might have fresh faith toward him. And experience ever increasing joy in him. And perhaps. A brand new faith for you as well. That you would for the first time even. Find your joy in him as you surrender to him. And trust in him. I want to lead us in prayer. I want to ask God to help us in those ways. And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. So with the